Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and George Santos has recused himself from sitting on any congressional committees. We have a show today that is going to blow your mind. NBC political analyst and Republican strategist Susan Del Percio will talk about the Republican Party's descent into chaos. Then Washington Post contributing columnist Danielle Allen will talk about her year-long project reporting on how we can repair our democracy. But first, we have senior editor at The Atlantic, Ron Brownstein. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ron Brownstein. Hey, thanks for having me again. Happy New Year, I guess. Can I still say that? <laughs> no, you're out of the window. I'm out of the window. And Larry David doesn't live that far from me. So who knows? He might come down and smite me. But I want to ask you, we are in the middle of this insane mm. house. I mean, it does feel like the there are no adults in the House GOP. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the House is often the expression of the party's id at any given moment, either party. We certainly saw that in the 90s when the Gingrich generation took control of the House. And now you have a House in which roughly three quarters of the Republicans are from deep Trump country, the districts that Trump won by at least 10 points. And then you have, you know, their majority makers. What put them over the top are the 18 Republicans from districts that voted for Biden in 2020. And the big question all year is going to be whether those more vulnerable swing seat Republicans impose any restraints 
on the right flank of the caucus or the, the conference, which feels enormously empowered by the outcome of the speaker fight in which, you know, McCarthy kind of, as someone said to me, surrendered his way to the speakership, really drawing almost no lines and just constantly giving more visibility, power, authority to the most extreme members of his caucus. And the question is when, if at all, do the relatively more, uh, you know, I wouldn't even say centrist members, members from more centrist areas draw a line. Molly, I will say that historically waiting for this has been, you know, waiting for Godot. I remember in 1998 (laughs) when Republicans were looking at impeaching Clinton and there were many people, myself included, who noted that there were at that point 98, 98 House Republicans from districts that voted for Clinton in 96. And the thought was, well, at least some of them are going to throw the brakes on this train. And they didn't. So logically, you would say these 18 plus another 20 or so in districts that Trump won only narrowly would have a different set of incentives. But until proven otherwise, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. It's interesting because Republicans paid dearly for that impeaching Clinton. Yes. And they paid dearly even in this election for the image of extremism. You know, I wrote I wrote the other look historic. And you and I have talked about this before. Historically, if you have the set of conditions that we had in November 22, the out party should be looking at substantial gains. Uh, You had a president's approval rating was in the low to mid 40s. You had 75 percent of the country saying the economy was on the wrong track. And you had the highest inflation in 40 years. And yet Republicans enormously underperformed. And the principal reason they underperformed at really all levels was that too many voters who were dissatisfied with the way things are going thought that Republicans were too extreme to entrust with power. In fact, I I had someone run for me from the exit polls the other day to quantify this. As you know, I like to quantify the, uh, yeah. the ephemeral. Something like 42 percent of voters who said the economy was in bad shape said that Republicans were too extreme. And those voters overwhelmingly voted Democratic for the House and presumably for these other statewide races. And that was the difference between, I think, a normal midterm that you would expect in these conditions and what you actually got, which was very disappointing for Republicans. And I put them in the situation where because they have such a narrow majority, the far right part of the conference has all of this leverage. So that's the paradox, right? The, the image of extremism limited their gains, and those limited gains are in turn empowering the most extreme forces in the conference to demand more of the same attitudes and policies that hurt them in the first place. It seems like Kevin McCarthy is not the man for this job. Well, McCarthy has decided, you know, that he is just not going to fight this, that he is got I me. Mean, McCarthy has basically made the calculation which I have seen Republican speakers make before, that in the end, it is the center or the folks from the centrist districts who are going to break and who will fall in line. Because they have, theoretically, in a five-seat majority, they have as much power as the right. You know, I mean, like I said, 18 House Republicans in districts that Biden won, another two dozen or so in districts that Trump only narrowly won that could easily go the other way in a presidential race. They could have said no to any of this, but he's betting they won't. And that as long as he keeps the right happy, he can keep his job. The voters get another say on that in two years as well. But in terms of the dynamics inside the uh, conference, that is clearly the calculation that he's making. The center in the end will give in if he tells them, I have to do this to satisfy the right. And if I don't, you're going to get someone even further to the right as speaker like Scalise. 
It is an interesting calculus. And I do think that Matt Gates, I mean, he's really elevated Matt Gates. I mean, I think that's proof that what he's doing isn't necessarily working. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene as well. I mean, look, right. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you've got to imagine that there are going to be ads in 2024 with Republican candidates in suburban districts morphing into Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, And, you know, in the same way that Republicans have tried to run against and have run against Pelosi or the squad, you know, something like 60 percent, it was pretty close. I think it was 58 percent of independent voters in the 2022 election said Republicans were too extreme. And it was a significantly wider spread for Republicans than it was for Democrats among independent voters. McCarthy is systematically putting the most off-putting potentially members of his caucus in front of TV cameras and, and giving them power for the next year. I mean, they are on the oversight committee. They are on this special weaponization of the federal government committee. They are on uh, the COVID committee. And so to the extent there are Republicans, and they may, in fact, you know, draw some blood from the Biden administration through these various uh, attacks and negotiations. But he has guaranteed that in the process, their most extreme members are going to be front and center, you know, talking about conspiracy theories and all sorts of things that hurt them, you know, in the places why they underperformed and potentially could hurt them even more in 2024 in the context of a presidential year. Right. And I, and I think that's ultimately kind of where we're seeing it go. Um, so now we have these committee hearings coming up soon, but we also have the debt ceiling yeah. and you've written about the debt ceiling. Talk to me about this. It's like a runaway freight train. Yeah, it's clearly the most important policy debate or confrontation that we're going to have in 2023 in Washington. There's not going to be a lot of of substantive. I mean, it's hard to imagine this Republican conference in the House getting to agreements with Biden on very much other than the bare minimum of keeping the doors open in the government and keeping the U.S. from defaulting, potentially throwing catastrophic ripples through the global economy. And, you know, what you've got is a reprise of what happened in 2011. So, you know, when Republicans are in the White House, Republicans in Congress have no real problem raising the debt ceiling. I mean, they've, they've done it. They did it repeatedly under Trump. They did it under W. It wasn't an issue. When Democrats are in the White House and Republicans hold a majority in either or both chambers, they demand spending cuts to offset the debt ceiling increase. In fact, when John Boehner became speaker in 2011, he offered what was called the Boehner rule, which said for each dollar <laughs> in more debt authority you get, there should be an offsetting dollar of spending cuts. Never mind that the debt ceiling is not about future spending. It's about you know right. funding things Past we've already spending. done. Yeah. Right. But that was what Boehner laid out. And in 2011, Obama did choose to negotiate with the House Republicans on a deficit reduction deal, what was known then as the grand bargain, and went through months of kind of a multi-layer negotiation that began with Joe Biden and Eric Cantor, who was then the number two in the House, holding these meetings about, you know, cutting spending in the Postal Service and, you know, auctioning off the airwaves more efficiently and so forth. Yeah. That ultimately broke down over the Republican refusal to raise taxes. And then Boehner and Obama picked up the baton in late June 2011, July 2011. They had a series of secret meetings that got them close to what was, again, described as the grand bargain, which was basically a 10-year plan to raise taxes and reduce spending on Social Security and Medicare primarily 
to you know lead toward the budget being in balance over time. And people who lived through that will recall there was a as, as someone said to me, put it to me last week, there was a lot of that in the air in 2011. I mean, there was a Simpson Bowles bipartisan commission right. whose executive director, by the way, is the deputy chief of staff in the White House, Bruce Reed. There was a Domenici Rivlin. I mean, there were just like these bipartisan commissions, and Obama basically accepted the idea that it would be a good thing to reach a long-term budget deal. And in fact, there were a number, it wasn't only Republicans who were pressing him to do that. At that point, there were more kind of center-right Manchin-esque Democratic senators who were also pressing him to do that after 2009-2010, two big initiatives, the stimulus plan and the Affordable Care Act. So Obama went through these negotiations Biden canner, that collapsed. Obama banner, that collapsed. And they were forced to scramble in the final weekend before default in these, you know, horrific, tense meetings inside the White House to cobble together what turned out to still be a significant budget reduction deal in order to get Republicans to raise the debt ceiling. And Jack Lew, who was the OMB director then and the Treasury Secretary in the second term, said to me, you don't have to hear the audio. You can just see the looks on the faces mm-hmm, in mm-hmm, Pete mm-hmm, Sousa's mm-hmm, pictures, mm-hmm. and you know how miserable it was. And Obama came out of that where you, none of the positives that he was seeking, a rational long-term pathway toward you know, managing the, de- uh, the, the deficit uh, came out, and you instead had all of this market turbulence that took the country to the brink of the fall. And he came out of that, and he said, never again. And the U.S. credit was downgraded. I mean, it was traumatic. Oh, U.S. credit was downgraded. It was a debacle. Republicans did get something they wanted out of that. Ultimately, they got some substantial budget cuts and this process known as sequestration, which really dominated the fiscal debates of the next decade with automatic defense and discretionary spending cuts. But Obama came out of that experience in 2011 and basically said never again. And in fact, as, as several people involved told me, it wasn't even that he came out of that experience and said never again. Even as it was concluding, he had decided never again. And in fact, in his second term, when Republicans came back and said, okay, in 2013, if you want to raise, you have to raise the debt ceiling again. Now we're demanding more cuts and we're demanding that you unravel the Affordable Care Act. He refused to negotiate with them over the debt ceiling. And eventually in the fall of 2013, the spring of 2014, and again in 2015, the Republicans uh, backed down and under Boehner, they did raise it. And that is the posture that Biden is taking now. It's important that people understand he is not saying he won't negotiate with them about the budget. Obviously, he has to do that. They control one chamber of Congress. What he is saying is we are not going to negotiate with the threat of default, you know, uh, as the gun cocked against our head. We are not going to negotiate in the context of the debt ceiling. Raising the debt ceiling is non-negotiable. We don't want to attach anything to it. Now, whether he can hold to that all the way through with Joe Manchin already out there saying, well, we should have another commission like we had back then, oh, you know, to God. study deficit reduction. But that is Biden's posture. It is inextricably rooted in his experience next to Obama. By the way, footnote on this, Molly, that's worth noting. When the second confrontation came up in 2013 about Republicans right. saying, don't, you know, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling unless you give us more cuts and roll back the Affordable Care Act. Harry Reid you know, rest in peace, who was then the Democratic majority leader, went to the White House and specifically told Obama to keep Biden away from the negotiations because he thought he would be too willing to cut a deal with Mitch McConnell. Wow. Just just an interesting fact. So, I mean, it, it kind of shows you how far 
Biden has come, you know, right. and, and even the threshold is not really true anymore. Like back then in 2011, you know, people can forget Obama and the key people around him thought it was both good economics and good politics to reach a long term deficit reduction deal that traded some cuts in Medicare and Social Security for, you know, tax increases. Right. I don't think that's true anymore, either in no, I don't either in, in the in the Biden White House or among Democrats in the Senate. That is and the House that is very much a minority position today. And and so even the threshold that, you know, Obama's threshold was, yeah, a deal would be a good thing. And he didn't see it as disqualifying to tie the negotiations to the debt ceiling. Both both of those propositions, I think, are no longer true among Democrats. So. How this plays out, I think, you know, uh, Biden is betting that enough Republicans, those Republicans we talked about before from more competitive districts, in the end will break and in some way, maybe by signing a discharge position, will pass this through the House and that enough Senate Republicans obviously will do so as well. But there are going to be a lot of white knuckle moments between now and then. You know, there's also the question of military spending, right? Yeah. Well, you know, look, I mean, that was like in, 20, in 2011, when they made this final deal on this horrible final weekend before the country defaulted for the first time, the deal was that it created a so-called super committee in the House, right. which is kind of what um, uh, uh, Manchin wants now, I think, that w- if they could re- reach agreement on a plan, would be guaranteed a floor vote on the plan. But if they couldn't reach agreement on a plan to cut the deficit by a, a little over $1 trillion, the fallback was what was known as sequestration which were automatic cuts in discretionary domestic and defense spending. And Democrats thought that was their failsafe because Republicans in the end would never allow the defense spending cuts to go into effect. And to some extent they were right because Congress did repeatedly loosen the belt on the sequestration. And, but some of it did go into effect and Republicans were willing to have those cuts go on to defense. And so like, Probably now betting that defense cuts are the circuit breaker that keep Republicans from demanding other cuts is probably a misguided hope uh, for Democrats. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Because also Republicans are now they're sort of against this war in Ukraine. They're against the spending on Ukraine. Right. So they could easily want to cut that. Yep. Yep. Right. So you could see. Boehner is like Lincoln compared to McCarthy. Boehner kind of accepted that there were responsibilities, you know, I mean, uh, and he writes in his memoir about how much he hated the second confrontation, that he was just, he just thought it was ridiculous and counterproductive and, you know, the crazy caucus and all of that. He was all in the first time. You know, he did go to New York and he gave this speech in May of 2011 where he laid down the Boehner rule, a dollar for cuts for a dollar of more debt authorization. But yes, I mean, Boehner clearly and Ryan even to a significant extent saw it as part of his job to resist the demands of the far right in the Republican ranks. And McCarthy clearly views his future, his uh, you know viability in the job as acceding to as many of those demands as possible while leaning on the moderates now to give in rather than trying to resist what the right wants to do, which was more the posture of Boehner and even more the posture of Ryan. So where do you think this goes? I guess I am in the camp that believes default is so unpredictable and potentially catastrophic that they will find a way to avoid it. 
and that enough Republicans will sign a discharge petition to pass a, de- a debt ceiling increase in the House. But I would guess that as part of that, Biden is going to have to accept some kind of Simpson Bowles type thing, you know, yet another commission to study the deficit. I don't think he will agree to what Obama did in 2011, which is a guaranteed streamlined process for that to be voted on. But I'm not sure I see even how he gets nine votes in the Senate without some sort of fig leaf study group that's, you know, examining how we deal with this. Maybe Biden can get enough Republicans to just back down to get a clean debt ceiling increase, but I'm not sure. Ron Brownstein, so interesting. I hope you will come back. Always glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Susan Del Percio is an NBC political analyst and Republican strategist. Welcome to Fast Politics, Susan Del Percio. Great to be with you. I'm so excited to be on your new podcast. Well, we're excited to have you. And as I was, I was writing my Vanity Fair thing today and yesterday, and I was thinking about Trump being back. And it's been, uh, you know, this weekend of Trump pretending to be jab. I mean, of course, he's not jab. And he still, you know, went into his autopilot pilot autocrat, but there certainly seems like there's a concerted effort uh, to, for Trump to try to pretend to be normal. Yeah. And Trump doesn't do normal well, and he doesn't stay very long when he does. Um, as a matter of fact, he'll get criticized for doing, for trying to do normal because he can't do it well. And it shows, and he comes off as very flat and not energetic. And his, his weekend appearances were pathetic. Yeah. They just were simply pathetic. They were just read off some copy. And, and here's what the worst part is, actually. It was trying to be normal and trying to rehash the past. He wasn't even trying to say, like, I'm going to come forward and do this for you. He's like, just stay with me because I'm really upset and I need your support. So please be with me like a, a little blankie. Yes, he said he's back and he's angry. I mean, you have worked with Republican candidates. You were a Republican strategist. I mean, I don't know. The people in my life who were Republicans, many of them have changed to independents. Are you an independent or are you still Republican? No, I'm still a Republican. Although I ask myself that question, why? Every every day, this is the answer. And it's changed over the years. You know, initially 2015, 2016, I was like, he's not taking over my party, God damn it. And, you know, I was very defiant. And then I was like, well, there's got to be someone here like to, to at least bring like sanity to the conversations. But it evolved, I'd say, in the last couple of years to this is a two-party country. People right. may want an independent party right, right. and other parties, but that's not how we work. If everybody leaves the Republican Party who's frustrated with it, when it comes back, right. they're not going to be so welcomed into it. And you have to be part of bringing it up. So I am a Republican that hopes to see the party burnt to the ground right. to build it back up. But to show... It's almost like, yes, we need Republican voices out there, even if no one's listening right now. Because I spend all this time thinking about, like, how can there be a normal Republican Party and sort of trying to game it out in my head and... And it seems like, I mean, this is such a great example, right? I had once asked David from this question and he said, a party needs to lose three elections in order to sort of rewrite the ship. So I thought 
2018, 2020, 22, that they might, but that, but then someone else told me, no, it's three presidential elections that they have to lose. I'm kind of in between those numbers, by the way. I think it, it starts in 2020 with the beginning of the the end for the Republican Party. And it's not going to come back to 2028, mostly because you not only have two presidential elections there, but the midterms, the other congressional election races, those are where the local people really have a voice and they start pushing out the losers. So you lose in 2020, you lose in 2022, you lose in 2024 because it will go through at least 2024. And then maybe by 2026, like people are like enough and the state and local organizations start recalibrating. And that's what, you know, I guess coming from, you know, building from the down, you know, the the lowliest races of city council all the way up to the presidential level, you know, you get to know how local politics really works and where the shifts start to come in. Right. I mean, that's clearly, I think the hope is that there'll be some, I know that this RNC meeting last week was a bloodbath. It's amazing because I have a friend who called me in a rage. Oh, really? Yeah, because they were harassing people. (laughs) It's so interesting because Trump was, you could tell that like leading up to it, he was like, I may throw Rana under the bus. I'm not sure yet. Like (laughs) I I could do it because I don't like getting blamed and maybe I could get her to be blamed for losing 2022. But, oh gosh, I don't know. And plus other people like me. So maybe, and then it was just, it was too far. It went too far down the pike for it to, to have a leadership, but to have one third of the, the voting members say, like, no, thank you. Right. I would say is good, but they went for more crazy, which was the problem. Right. <laughs> and my friend said exactly that. We obviously need new blood, but, but um, you know, this is, I mean, the my pillow guy is not going to be how it happens. No, 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 no. It'll take, re- because again, those people who vote at, at the RNC for chairman come from the state parties. Right. Again, it's going to take time, but you had to be patient. But you feel a little bit optimistic that there could be a sort of sanity, like that a Mitt Romney could come back or, you know, someone like that. Oh, I think there will, sanity will return, but I think we're maybe about halfway through as far as burning to the ground. Yeah. That we need to, we have a long way to go (laughs) (laughs) to to really fail miserably. And that goes to what you were about to say when I I interrupted you. So I apologize about Kevin McCarthy and this new house that we have. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about that. I mean, they are ready to roll with lots of investigations. (laughs) I mean, already, I mean, I'm sure you saw that CNN polling last week that, you know, the American people are not so interested in Hunter Biden's laptop. No, there's not. And I don't think, and here's the key, given the way we operate now as a country versus, for example, even during the Benghazi hearings. Right. You know, almost a, it's almost a decade ago. Can you believe it? But the difference is, is that people just don't buy into that kind of stuff now. And they're already so planted into each side that if the Republicans, if that's all they can do is get into Hunter Biden's laptop and let's say they can put it all online and everyone can see what's on it and there was bad stuff on it. Right. No one's going to care because you haven't done anything to govern. Right. And they walked into this so poorly with such a bad look. Yeah. 15 votes. Sheesh. 
the calculus that McCarthy has made is that he has to appease the right and the center will go along, right? The far right and the center right will go along. But a lot of these people will, in fact, lose their seats. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're in very swingy districts. So, I mean, do those people eventually go like, fuck this, it's not for me, excuse my French? Or do you think they just are like, we have to appease the right? Um, it's a great question. I think, you know, there were 18 newly elected members of Congress that came from Biden districts. And there was a lot of talk about how many were from New York. Right. I'm willing to bet, not including Santos, which is his own problem. Um, <laughs> put that aside for yeah. a moment. Yeah, but even Santos district, there is at least three or four of those newly elected Republicans that will not win reelection. Yeah. They just won't. And it's the way it goes. It happens in New York quite often, by the way. Republicans come in at weird times where the rest of the country does not as great and Republicans do well. And then they get voted out in a presidential because of turnout. And so I do think that, you know, I've been yelling for it. They all have the same vote. You know how many votes a member of Congress has? One. Right. It doesn't matter if you're Matt Gates or Mike Lawler or whoever. Right. You only get one vote. And I've been waiting for these 18 to kind of form, if you will, like the democracy caucus is what I had had in mind. Right. Like they would actually do the right thing because these are sensible pe- people. Again, minus Santos. Right. Um, <laughs> but there and there are others who want to do the right thing. Now, here's where it gets interesting is that McCarthy's throwing out all these things. He had the anti-abortion vote. He's going to do some stupid immigration, vote, you know, uh, right. border vote. He's going to put all these really hardcore conservative votes out there. The question is, is how many or for how long will he continue to do that? Because that's when they start getting pushed back from the middle. Right. Because the Republicans that I just talked about, those 18, plus about at least another 20, are not going to vote to default on our debt. They won't do it. Right. Well, that is the big, that is the big, big question. But the thing that I think is interesting, so people will, people always say when, with Nancy Pelosi, by the way, I think that McCarthy has been a walking advertisement for Nancy Pelosi, right? Like <laughs> this job is a lot harder than it looks, right? But the question I had was, so here we have this guy who, you know, one of the things Nancy Pelosi was famous for was she never made Democrats vote on things that it might hurt them in re-election. So, for example, Medicare for all. She never took Medicare for all. She never let it go to the to the Congress because even though it's a very good idea, she worried it would hurt those frontliners, the swingy Democrats, like that it might hurt them in their re-elections. So this is like completely contrary to exactly what McCarthy is doing. Yeah, it's interesting. Pelosi was such, I mean, a tremendous leader. Not only could she get the votes that were really tough through with her very slim and equal majority to what McCarthy's dealing with now, but she also was able to work with the other side to know where the votes were to let her members off the hook. Right. She was also known for telling her members, if you have to run against me and make me the devil, go right ahead. Right. She didn't let ego get in the way. Whereas McCarthy, the only thing he has is his ego because that's 
only thing that's driving him to do this job. Otherwise, wouldn't you be so embarrassed? I mean, if you're McCarthy, everything you've had to do, for God's sake. But he lives with Frank Lutz, okay? So I want to get into this for a second. Frank Lutz, I mean, you can say a lot of things about him, but he's no dummy. I mean, so, I mean, there are people advising McCarthy who are explaining to him, are there or am I just delusional? No, there are people who explain it. But the thing is, is that, No one knows as best as people in those positions, if you will, that are all based on ego, like McCarthy. McCarthy listens, yes, but he still thinks he knows better. Right, right. So you could surround yourself with really smart people and maybe do one or two smart things, but it won't stop you from blowing yourself up if you're convinced this is the only way I can get from here to there. Right. So it's ego. We are in this weird run up. There's one declared Republican candidate right now. His name is Donald Trump. He's very furious at everyone trying to run against him. I mean, (laughs) where does that go? I mean, do you think he ends up being the nominee? I actually don't think he'll appear on a ballot. Interesting. I don't say he's not going to run because he's announced, so therefore he's running. But I don't think he will be running long enough to have his name on an actual ballot. So I've been that, that way for a while. For There's a whole host of reasons. His legal troubles are going to start catching up with him. Polls are starting to move against him. And it's not, if he can't be number one, he doesn't want it. And more importantly, he doesn't want to lose in 2024. Right. And that fear of losing is what will probably be the biggest driver. Again, going to ego, because there's no way he wins in 2024. He can't moderate enough. Not only is it not in his personnel, but literally he can't do it. it. There's no room for him right, right. to change. But the problem is that reality of splitting the field is still there. It is. And yet that's what Donald Trump is betting on. Put my name in early. It'll stop people from running or they'll just be speculation. So there really won't be much of a field if for some reason it, it works that I want to run. But the point was just to shut everyone else out. And here's the thing. He's not. Right. And he didn't because Ron DeSantis has not stopped the whisper campaign. He's amplified it. Nikki Haley probably jumps in. Now, what you think of these two individuals, you know, we'll put aside. Right. But the fact is, is that they're going to get more attention. Right. And they're going to be talking about what's happening in the future. And Donald Trump is going to be like, well, they're nothing without me. Right. Okay. well, what are you going to do for me, Donald? It does seem to me like he's just so unable to stay on message that that is going to hurt him. And I also think like the novelty of him is gone. Absolutely. And I actually think one of the reasons why he hasn't done the rallies is because his lawyers are petrified of him just going on. You know, he doesn't just do a, a typical speech he, or rally. He goes on for an hour with all these gripes and who knows what he's going to say when he gets on, you know, in his groove. So I think that's one of the reasons. And people are tired of him. People, And that's why I think like the problem with, like Biden has a problem too. People are tired of all of this. Right. They want to put 2016 and 2020 behind them. They're happy that Biden's there in that he's steadied the ship. But I think people want to look forward. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I continue, though, to wonder if you're 
I, I mean, I think there's certainly a hunger for that. But there are a lot of things in this Republican Party, for example, that sort of Trump has. I'm trying to pivot to Matt Schlapp and CPAC. CPAC is coming up. <laughs> Matt Schlapp has these allegations. There's tape. I mean, what what are we doing here? I mean, does he just get to keep CPAP because nobody cares? You know, what the heck is CPAC anyway? Kellyanne Conway did get one thing right when she went there right after Trump's win. It's Trump PAC. Right. It's T-PAC. It's not conservative PAC. This is nowhere close to what you used to see back in the day, 20, 30 years ago when I started in the business. CPAC, I mean, I think it wasn't a big fan, but it was like, it was actually conservative values moving forward and I and actually a place for ideas. Right. CPAC now is just a Trump circus and it's not surprising that one of its leaders find themselves in in trouble. And so what is CPAC? I mean, if seriously, like I don't even know who cares to go to it anymore. People like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world and and Bo- Gosart want to go to like the, right, the, the white, white supremacist na- rallies, exactly. the white nationalist rallies. Like, so who's going to CPAC? Right. No, I mean it's a it's a very good question. Jesse is texting me that Matt Schlapp actually said they are not conservatives. They are people who are in love with the founding of America. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm certainly not going anymore. I think the hope for a lot of the more sane Republicans left is that there'll be some kind of reckoning, right? Absolutely. And like I said, it'll take the party to burn down. It just, it won't be small little improvements that you're going to say, oh, we're a little bit better. We're a little bit better. It's going to have to be a complete and utter failure at the electoral level, which is probably going to be 2024. And I would say with the exception of, I think the Senate will flip to Republican just because of the math. I know everyone said, how could the Republicans lose this time? But there were at least a few swing states in play. Right. But there's too many seats in play with too many incumbents. Like if Tester doesn't run, who wins Montana? Like, what Democrat wins Montana? No one. Do we think Tester's not running? I thought Tester was running. He may, but like, I'm just saying the point is, is that like, there's only a handful. And West Virginia, I mean. Yeah, I was just going to say Manchin. Does he run as a Republican? Completely doable. I don't think Manchin can run as a, because Jim Justice is thinking about running, right? Yeah, but you know, it all happened until it, it's, it's all happening until it's not happening. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, the map is really bad. So you are a New York Republican. And I am. so this is really your wheelhouse. Why did Democrats have such a bad showing in New York State? Two reasons. One was the maps that the Democrats proposed were so ridiculous And that was because of Sean Patrick Maloney. And let's put the blame there. He wanted it to go even further gerrymandered. So when the the maps went to the courts, of course they got overturned because they were so bad. The second thing is, is turnout in New York state was abysmal by the Democrats. Republicans were jazzed up, which normally doesn't matter. Right. But Democrats did not show up. Everyone made a big deal about Kathy Hochul. Oh my God, six points and $10 million given to Lee Zeldin. You know what? Letitia James ran against a Republican that didn't have bus fare. (laughs) She ran against someone who didn't have bus fare and she won by eight points. Four years ago, she won by 27 points. Nothing changed except for Republican turnout, but more importantly, Democrats didn't show up. 
They just didn't. The numbers were not there. And that's what the Democrats have to fear in states like New York and and other places. Like people are not showing up. Yeah, that's so interesting. Thank you so much, Susan Del Percio. I hope you'll come back. Of course. Absolutely. Thank you. I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. Danielle Allen is a contributing columnist at The Washington Post. Welcome to Fast Politics, Danielle Allen. Thank you, Molly. Glad to be here with you. I'm very excited to have you because it's a very interesting project that is something that is greatly needed. So explain to us what you're doing at The Washington Post. The short of it is, I think we all know a lot of us are pretty frustrated, anxious, depressed about the state of our politics. I've been in a state of high alert about our democracy for a decade, going back to 2013 and even longer for a lot of reasons, things happening in my family. I lost a cousin in 2009, which was a real life turning point moment for me. So I've been thinking a lot about why is it that our democracy feels like it's not delivering for us right now? Why does it feel so much under strain, so fragile? And that has led me into a project that I call a project of democracy renovation. Think of our democracy, our institutions as a house. We all live in it together. And, you know, we're a heck of a lot bigger as a family and more complex than we used to be. The systems aren't fit for purpose anymore. The house was never built for everybody. Some people had, you know, beautiful rooms with a view. Others were stuck in gloomy basements. And so we've got to address that. And then there are other features of the house that have just been, you know, sort of pillars and foundations knocked out from under us by transformation. For example, the transformation of social media. So I think we have a lot of deferred maintenance, basically, on our democracy. And so I'm spending my year for The Washington Post trying to lay out things that we can do to renovate our shared house, our democracy, so that it works for us in the 21st century. So you're a political theorist at Harvard. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? I feel like that's a real basic question, but like my dad, you know, just for whoever doesn't totally now. Of course. No, I mean, it's not an obvious thing. So I am in a political science department. And so there are a whole lot of people who study politics, but that doesn't actually mean, you know, studying politics the way you read about it in the newspaper. It's not about tracking the horse race in the election or something like that. It's more about trying to understand the deeper phenomena that are affecting why our politics operates the way it does. And then in my case, I'm also a political philosopher. That means I really ask questions not just about how things work and why they work, but also what should we do? How should they work? Um, What are the positive um, visions we should pursue? So political philosophers, for example, think about theories of justice, theories of fairness, theories of freedom, theories of equality. And we ask the question, okay, if these ideals are worthy, how do we actually make them real in the world? So this feels like an impossible, impossible feat. Where do you start? Well, you know, first of all, we've got to remember that it's not impossible. And in some sense, you know, our history is a history of people carrying out democracy renovations. There was the first really big one known as the Constitutional Convention. It's fair to say that all those folks who helped design the Constitution were political theorists, for example. They thought 
about the how and the why and the what, but they also had a goal. You know, they were trying to achieve effective governance. They had a, a banking crisis, a Congress that couldn't form a quorum. They couldn't mm-hmm. deal with their wartime debt and so forth. It was really those issues that provoked the Constitutional Convention, and they literally re-engineered the systems of their government in order to make sure it worked. Of course, we re-engineered again after the Civil War in the early 20th century. A lot of re-engineering happened then in in what was known as that sort of progressive era, where that was when we got direct election of senators, for example, and not having them be picked by the state legislatures anymore. It's when women got the right to vote. So we have had big periods of democracy renovation, and I believe we're due for another one. And what would that look like exactly? So there are a lot of pieces and parts of this. And I was fortunate to co-chair a commission that did work on this. It was sponsored by an organization called the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. This is a super old organization. It's older than the country. It was founded by the same people who led the revolution. And what they wanted to do is assemble what they at the time called all the members of the learned professions. So doctors and lawyers and ministers and professors and so forth, who were asked to always sort of stand by as a knowledge body that could help the new country figure its way through problems. So we did a lot of work on the strain in our democracy, and we have a report with about 31 recommendations. So it's a lot of things, and some of them are federal. Some of them are at the state level. If I just start at the federal level, for me, one of my favorites of the 31 recommendations is the idea that it is time to uncap the House of Representatives. Oh, interesting. The House was supposed to grow, you know, over time, and it hasn't grown for about a century. It seems like something that would be a hard sell to Republicans, but certainly, right, that was the original idea. It was the original idea. Exactly every 10-year census, the House was supposed to grow again. We've actually done a lot of modeling on what it would mean to just play due deferred maintenance and grow it as if if we had stayed growing at the same sort of apportionment rate as had been historically the norm, we would currently be at about 585 members. We've done a lot of modeling on that. It does not actually obviously result in benefit to either party. So there may be a little window of possibility where we could actually get this through. Oh, that's so interesting. And what states would benefit from this? Well, to some extent, you know, as you might imagine, the bigger states with the bigger populations would benefit the most. California, exactly. Yeah. But the other thing it would do is it would flow through to the Electoral College. So the Electoral College is was designed to be weighted in favor of less populous states. But right. the numbers in the college, the Electoral College, flow directly from the size of the House. So one of the reasons the Electoral College is so badly out of whack right now is because we haven't grown the House for a century. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you give me one other really interesting suggestion you guys had? Sure. So, you know, we look at the Supreme Court and it's very clear that the longevity of justices has politicized that body. It means that, you know, the selection of Supreme Court justices is now sort of the number one issue in a presidential election. We think it's really important to depoliticize the court. And we think that the most important way of doing that is by achieving term limits for Supreme Court justices. They don't need to serve for life. They could serve for 18 years. There's a little bit of a debate about whether this could be done merely through the rules of the judiciary with the sort of transfer of justices to another court, the federal judiciary. They can stay in the system for life, but needn't stay on the Supreme Court for life. Right. Um, that's one possibility. Others think maybe it would require a constitutional amendment. But whatever the case, 18 years, with then you'd have a kind of routine beat of justices rotating on and off. Every president would get basically the same number of justices to a point. 
And in principle, that would help depoliticize the court. Yeah. Do you feel like there's an appetite for this stuff? I mean, I certainly am all in on it, but I'm just curious since you've been on this. Sure. I mean, there's definitely an appetite in among us, you know, Americans broadly across the country. If I hear your question right, I'm hearing a question about politicians and could we actually get this done? Yes. So I think that's a really important point and it matters in some sense. There's kind of like an order of operations you have to think about here. Probably we're not likely to get Congress to do these things right up front. So it's really important to remember that power over how members of Congress get elected lies in the states. So in every state, we can do what Alaska just did, for example, change the election method. Nevada just voted as well for an approach with a nonpartisan primary. For ranked choice, right? Well, even more importantly than that is shifting away from a partisan primary to what you might call a a preliminary, where you've got all comers and you take the top four or five candidates on and yes, instant runoff in the general election. But it's really that switch away from the party primary structure um, that is the important sort of opening up. It means candidates would have to campaign to the general electorate all the way through the process. That's what would generate different dynamics in incentives for elected officials. That's really interesting. Uh, do you think that's feasible? I mean, certainly it's it is happening. So that and it's Nevada is a is a swing state, but Alaska is very red. Yep. I mean, this is a mechanism that is beneficial again in both red and blue contexts. So. When I talk about democracy renovation, I am not talking about this in a partisan way. I am talking about what I think we need to have institutions that are responsive to the people that can get us past gridlock to effective steering so that we can solve the urgent problems that we collectively share. Do you want to talk a little bit about your about cause? Sure. I mean, you know, I said I've you know, had a sense of urgency about our democracy for a, a long time, and that does really come from basic family experiences, you know, the, the sort of first part of that is I have you know, come by a sort of commitment to democracy, totally honestly, just as a matter of family inheritance. You know, my granddad helped found one of the first NAACP chapters in Northern Florida in the 40s, which was just super dangerous. For, oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. And then on my mom's side, my great grandparents helped fight for women's right to vote in the early 20th century. So my great-grandmother was president of the League of Women Voters in Michigan in the 30s. Also dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Not not quite the same level, but a certain amount of insanity for sure. Right. Yes, for sure. So that kind of commitment to empowerment was just sort of part of the air and water that I breathed growing up. And so democracy didn't really become personal to me until I just watched my own generational cohort come up in the world. And whereas my parents' generation, everybody came up. That wasn't true for my generation. For my generation, it was really what I call the great pulling apart. So, you know, some of us had amazing opportunities here. I sit tenured professor at Harvard. I believe there's no more privileged position in the world from the point of view of freedom and security. But at the same time, I've got dead cousins and not in a way you can feel good about. So homicide and substance use disorder and things like that. So Cuz is my book about one of my cousins, my baby cousin, Michael. Michael was killed in 2009. He was shot and killed. He had spent a long time in prison. He'd gone to prison at the age of 15 on a first arrest in Southern California for an attempted carjacking. This was a terrible thing to have done, obviously, but it was also a time when punishment in California was at its most intense. So Michael got a sentence of 12 years and eight months and served most of that. So he'd only had two years out at the point that he was, again, shot and killed by somebody he had met while he was in prison. So that sort of 
changed everything for me. Really, all the work I had already been doing on democracy, I came to sort of pull it to a focus on justice reform. But I quickly came to understand that even where we had bipartisan solutions for problems, it was really hard to get them through because of the dysfunction of our politics. So that's what brought my attention then to our democracy. Um, you know, we, we need that democracy renovation in order to do some of the really important things we all need to do for our communities. I feel like criminal justice reform is a part of this. It's a part of it for sure. And also being able to address the urgent problems in the economy, you know, real sort of stalling out of mobility for a whole lot of people. The fact that so many people can't find a footing in the labor market in the sense of good jobs, jobs that are family sustaining, jobs that permit a sort of thriving life. Um, there's work out there, but a lot of it really alienating or exploitative in various ways. So right now, you know, our, our society is kind of scaling up and getting ever more complex. And we're not actually dealing with that in ways that give people a foundation for flourishing in their communities. And that's about criminal justice. It's about safety from violence for, you know, all people need that safety. I mean, that's not just about crime, it's about violence generally in our culture. It's, yeah. you know, we just all watched what's happened in Memphis, you know, this past period of time. So there's a lot that we need to do uh, on our own behalf. Yeah, so important and so interesting. Do you think there's anything sort of solid that the Biden administration can do now? A lot of this is on the federal, but do you have any, you know, sort of recommendations for them? You know, this is a slightly different direction, but I think that there are a lot of really important opportunities in the work they've just done passing the Inflation Reduction Act, for instance. So that is going to require an awful lot of proactive coordination across the different levels of our federal system, so federal, state, county, and municipal. And I think that is actually a real opportunity to you know, strengthen and make much healthier um, how all those different jurisdictional levels are working together. Can we find a kind of harmonizing approach? I talk about aspirational federalism a lot. I think the Biden administration actually has a real opportunity to show us you know, a really different way that we can go about so putting the puzzle pieces together and becoming a country where we can actually um, get things done with a sense of common purpose. Yeah, no, it definitely seems like that. You'd still teach undergrads, right? Yep, undergrads and graduate students. Yep, the whole gamut. I mean, are you seeing anything that we should know that's hopeful that will make us less depressed? No pressure. <laughs> well, I mean, let me, I am hopeful, but let me first just set the context a little bit. I mean, you're right. My students right now, there is a lot of fear, a lot of anger, a lot of anxiety. Those are the emotions that they register. I do little surveys even at the start of class about things. And those are the emotions that came out at the start of this semester for sure. So I can't pretend that there's a kind of, you know, joyful wave about to ascend. At the same time, though, I am hopeful. I said I've been working in this space of democracy renovation for about a decade now. And my you know total red alert went off in 2013 when Congress had a 9% approval rating. So from my point of view, honestly, I my estimate is we're about halfway through a really bad storm. I think we've got another decade to go. It's a long time. Okay. <laughs> I realize that. But I actually think we're halfway through. And the reason I think that is because I can see so many people all over the country at the grassroots level working at democracy renovation at every level city level, you know, where people are working on things like participatory budgeting or bringing in ranked choice voting so that you have more inclusion, more people participating. 
you know, the effort to really achieve high levels of voter registration and voter participation. I mean, there is a lot of renovation work going on all over the country. And that wasn't really true a decade ago. So that in itself is enough to tell me we're headed in the right direction. Oh, okay. Now we have to end because this was hopeful and that never happens. So (laughs) we have to end now because we never get a hopeful moment here. I hope you will come back. Thank you. Such an important voice. And also uh, you have a really interesting perspective and in this. And I think to get some, I feel like we're so in it and we never sort of pull back to have high level thinkers in here to sort of explain the philosophical. So this is really helpful, at least to me anyway. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Anything (laughs) I can do to be helpful, glad to do it. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you, Molly. Thank you. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jongfast. Jesse Cannon. That Carrie Lake woman. A woman who clearly has a rider that says she cannot go anywhere without perfect lighting or a filter on her Zoom. She's in a little trouble, I hear. So uh, she wanted to be governor, but instead she's going to be investigated. <laughs> Hell yeah. The quest from Arizona Secretary of State uh, comes after Lake posted a tweet on January 23rd that made an unfounded claim that there were 40,000 ballots that didn't match voter signatures that the state had on record. Leak posted a graphic that showed 16 voter signatures alleging that they didn't match with what Arizona had on file. Look, this is going to keep happening until a stop is put to it. And so it is really important that people who believe in democracy stand up for it. There's very little to look forward to in the future. But the one thing I look forward to in the future is Kerry running against Ruben Gallego and him having to remind her that she ran even behind Blake Masters in some of the districts that she lost. Well, we could. I think we could see a Blake Masters, Kerry Lake, Ruben Gallego, Kirsten Cinema death match. One of those fools is going to step up to the plate. Yeah, and uh, for that, she is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.
it. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.